hello, and welcome to another episode of the Authentic Audience Podcast. My name is Krista Ritma, and I'm your host. Today's episode is so special to me. I'm very close now to leaving again for Nepal in a couple of weeks, and when my producer sent me the information for Maggie, all I saw is Nepal and Kopila and was like, yes, book her. And then I went in and devoured um, every piece of information I could about Maggie. And uh, Maggie Doyne is who's on my podcast with me today. She is an inspiration of a human being. She is CEO and co-founder of the Blink Now Foundation, a beautiful foundation, which we learn all about today in Nepal of all places. And Um, It's called the Kopila School that she founded, and my Nepali name happens to be Kopila, and I just about lost it um, when I learned about all the amazing work that she's done, Um, and this gave me life today. This conversation really did give me life today. It was in the middle of back-to-back calls, totally crazy work day, and I was like instantly transported to Nepal. Um, We get real about a lot of things, um, what we can do as human beings to make the world a better place for one, no matter how big or how small, there's always something we can do that leaves an impact. And I think that was my biggest takeaway from this conversation with Maggie. Um, She's pretty much, you know, immersed herself fully in walking the talk and living this life in Nepal, um, helping children and empowering women. And I think you know, she could, I guess, maybe be pretty righteous and judgmental about all of us not doing the kind of work that she's doing and contributing to the world and making it a better place. But she's so compassionate and so easy to talk to and has just accomplished so much for this organization and for Nepal. And I'm really proud um, that I got to meet her. And we actually are hoping to have a cup of chai together in Nepal and we're both there, but we talk about nonprofit work. We talk about grassroots organizations. We talk about how to make sure your money is going to the right place and what you can do right now to make a difference, whether you're a nonprofit or not. So really beautiful conversation with Maggie. I'm super inspired by her. It's got me itching to go back to Nepal in a few weeks. Um, And I just enjoyed this so much. It was super close to my heart. I can't wait to talk to her again, and I hope you enjoy it. Maggie Doyne is co-founder and CEO of the Blink Now Foundation. She is originally from New Jersey and has dedicated the last 10 plus years of her life to educating children and empowering women. She was the recipient of the 2015 CNN Hero Award, and her work has been recognized by the Dalai Lama, Elizabeth Gilbert, Nick Kristoff, Katie Couric, and Prince Harry and Duchess Meghan. While her work is focused in Nepal, she speaks all over the world in hopes of inspiring others to start projects that will generate positive change in our world. What a bio. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you. Thanks. It's good to be here. I'm so happy to have you. Uh, We were just speaking before uh, we started recording about my relationship with Nepal and sort of catching you up. But um, And the biggest thing that I think my my listeners do not know is what drew me to you originally when it came across my desk is the name of your, is it the name of your school, Kopila mm-hmm. School? Yeah. yeah, and that's what um, 
I've like had been, it's such a, a non-Nepali thing actually, but I got really attached to getting a Nepali name. And then every year I would go, it wouldn't happen <laughs> because <laughs> Nepal really teaches you not to get attached. And finally this past year, um, I wasn't thinking about it. And all of a sudden this ama now that I've known for a couple of years, um, looked at me and said, Kopila, and Mm. that's the name of your school. So it feels really meant to be, and I'm so happy to talk to you, but let's just start by how are you? Where are you? What is happening in your life today? Oh, I am. I'm really good. I just got back, uh, from a whirlwind of travel I'm in California for just a week, uh, seeing my husband and daughter Ruby, and I'm headed back to Nepal again on Tuesday. So just, I'm I'm good. I'm moving around a lot, um, probably a little more than I want to (laughs) be, but I I feel great. And um, yeah, I'm at our little uh, place in California here. And looking at our prayer flags and mm-hmm. yeah, just having a little moment. We travel a lot. And so wherever we are, we try to bring our prayer flags and <laughs> helps to kind of center us. But um, I, I can't wait to be back in Nepal next week. <laughs> yeah, I do the same thing. I'm actually looking out the window at prayer flags too. We just <laughs> moved, we just moved to Santa Cruz actually. So I'm in California as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also travel a lot. So I have like my little Nepali sort of altar now that I bring wherever I go because that country really gets in you mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I can't seem to escape it, nor do I want to. And I would love to sort of start there. I've been researching your organization and I want to get into that and what you do and um, sort of the nitty gritty of it. I have a lot of questions around that. But first of all, um, why Nepal? How did Nepal come into your world? Yeah, it's so random. I mean, I always <laughs> say you like Nepal kind of chooses you and, and yes. like wraps you in. I know that resonates with you. But I, there's this huge misperception that I'm like this girl from suburbia who went out to like help kids and it could not be further from the truth. I couldn't have even placed Nepal on a map, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago when this whole journey started. And I just um, decided one morning kind of randomly, you know, I grew up in uh, suburban New Jersey where everyone- Wait, so did I. (laughs) We're like the same person. <laughs> What's happening? <laughs> so, you'll, well, you'll get this. Like, so you grow up in suburbia. You know, we're both white women, probably yep. a bit privileged in some ways. Yeah. Yep. Um, I grew up on a cul-de-sac in this little town called Mendham. It's, um, you know, I had a trampoline in my backyard. I played soccer. I played lacrosse. And from the time you're in like sixth grade, it's all about college, 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 college. Like what school are you going to? Where are you going to get in? Get to the right big name school. And they plaster the banner and they put it in the newspaper. And then you go to the grocery store and everyone's like, where are you going to college? And I fit that bill. I was just like every other girl with a ponytail and <laughs> thought that the end all be all in my life was what college I got into. And so I did it. I like had, you know, I 
was the athlete and I was a really good student and I was on student government and I was editor in chief of my yearbook and I just did all the things that I was supposed to do. Um, and I was happy and I had two sisters and a really loving mom and dad. My mom was a nurse. My dad was a teacher. Um, life was really good. And then kind of, I just woke up one morning and was like, wait, what? Like, I'm trying to be all of these things and I have no idea who I am on the inside. And so initially I just said, no, like, like put a stop on this and why I'm going to go spend all of this money on a college degree, having no idea who I am on the inside, having really never left suburban New Jersey in this little bubble that I grew up in. And I kind of just started to question it all with a feeling in my gut and it prompted me to sign up for a gap year, which, you know, they're becoming more and more popular, but it was just kind of a time for rite of passage, for travel, for exploration, for looking on the inside of who I was. And just like a lot of times you call it a year off, um, but in the gap year community, we like to call it a year on. And just like a time to see the world outside of me and see the world outside of New Jersey. So mm. I sign up for this amazing gap year program. It's totally culturally immersive. It sounds actually really similar to what you're trying to create um, with Emery. And it was just like, I can't explain it other than talking about the experiences that I had. We did meditation on a Buddhist monastery. We did an outdoor survival class in nature. We learned how to scuba dive. We um, rebuilt a seawall with local villagers, we, we, which is very humbling because you realize like the villagers do it all and you're just there to like cheer them on. Right. <laughs> it was the whole yes. thing, like just the whole thing. And it was beautiful and it woke me up and I was reading again. And I think like kind of the passion and curiosity that had been beaten out of me in the four walls of a classroom came back. And to put a long story short, after that first semester, I was just asked by the mentor of the program, like, what do you want to do next? And I was like, I'd really love to work with kids because I was the babysitter growing up and a camp counselor. And I knew that I had a knack with kids. So I get placed in Northeastern India, and this was in 2005 at the height wow. of the Civil War and the Maoist Rebellion. And I started working in this incredible organization, working with Nepali refugees. And I met the people, and I started hearing the kids' stories. And by the time they came across the border to India, you know, they'd suffered so tremendously. And I started to see through my friends in the Nepali community just what it meant to go through the raw effects of civil war and family separation and, you know, trauma and um, child labor and, you know, what it what it meant to be a refugee sleeping under a piece of plastic on the side of the road. And I was just in awe of the people. And I met a young friend, Sunita, who's still a dear friend of mine. And she was coming of age too, to be honest. She was like 16 and she'd left her village during the civil war. And so we both decide like, oh my gosh, like the borders opened up, there's our missus. Let's go back and like trace the footsteps of where your village is and find out everything that happened. So that's what we did. We got on a bus, crossed over the border on a pony cart, 
got on another bus. Yeah. And eventually the road ended and we trekked for three days to find Sunita's village and her home. And from there, like the love story really began. And was this before, so it's, I I don't even know if a lot of people know about the Nepalese civil war that happened and that's another whole story, but um, wasn't it after that, that Nepal actually closed its doors to the outside for a while or am I wrong? Is my history wrong? It it was open and shut um, during the conflict. I mean, got it. Okay. Yeah. Nobody could really, it wasn't totally safe to travel there. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's safe to say it really closed its doors to tourism and visitors. And even prior to the Civil War, like, Nepal was very, very late to open to the outside community. You know, there was a, yeah. there was a huge fear of being, like, conquered and taken over, probably from what happened in India with the Gorkhas. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was very much a secluded country. And then the Civil War came in and really wreaked havoc in, in rural Midwestern Nepal. Wow. Yeah. I just, um, I'm reading a book about it and I, I sort of like the last couple of years for me have been a real deep dive into Nepal because for, we have very, you and I, you and Emery actually have way more similar stories. I'm coming in a little bit later and felt the same thing, like this pull, you know, I actually went to Nepal for the first time for an entire month, a month before my wedding. It was totally crazy. Mm. And I just was called to go and she invited me to go. And I just went, you know, it was one of those things that I just was like led Mm -hmm. (laughs) almost Mm -hmm. like if I was, I wasn't really conscious and like the saying, yes, it just when the next thing I knew I was there. And so for me, it's like, I just am now, you know, in the last three years, I didn't really couldn't tell you where it was on a map either, except I knew it was somewhere by India and China. (laughs) Um, Everyone knows Mount Everest. And everyone knows Everest. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, from like that moment to now where I'm like learning Nepali and like, you know, going back and now have like Babas at Pashupati enough that know who I am. You know, it's totally a trip. To go from like that to this in just such a short amount of time. But for me, it's been like a deep dive. Um, mm-hmm. So it's not something that I've been studying or knew anything about. And now all of a sudden, like here it is. And then I keep being led and called and people like Emery and you keep showing up in my life. And there's um, obviously a strong pull that I have to it. But one thing that I've learned and that I'm really excited to talk to you about is um, once you do go into Nepal and, and we could probably go on and talk for a whole, you know, days on why uh, the culture and the people and everything are so beautiful. And it's really something that you have to feel. Um, It's really hard to explain. Um, But now you're there and you're doing this work and you've started this organization. And from what I've learned about trying to do this kind of work in Nepal is it's not easy. Um, And it's, there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of hoops and mainly because um, Nepal is very spread out. Um, so there's like, you know, it takes sometimes days or even weeks to get from one village to another. And I have a friend there now who's like working on, um, the new sort of like version of their constitution, I guess. And, um, just the amount of different languages and dialects and cultures, and it's just so vast. And to be able to create something that you've created, um, I would just love to talk to you like about more of the nitty gritty of that and one dedicating your life to this. So this is actually a business podcast, but it always gets very like spiritual, personal, um, 
vulnerable, no matter how hard I try to keep it business. Um, Mm -hmm. But you have like a viable, successful business and organization in Nepal being a Westerner. And I would just love for you to sort of talk to that process a little bit. Sure. I'd be happy to to break that down a little bit. So so long story short, again, <laughs> um, I traveled to Nepal, fall in love with the people, the culture, the country, but yeah, it's ravaged by war. It is completely, it's one of the most food deficit regions of the world. Um, you know, there's malnutrition, there's infant mortality, maternal mortality, suicides, a leading killer of death amongst women, childbearing ages. Uh, one million orphan children following the Civil War. Uh, female enrollment into primary school at the time was incredibly low. Um, and then you throw, you know, uh, unemployment and the challenges of being a subsistence farming nation on top of all of these things. And it was, times were really hard after the war, especially in this region of Karnali where I've now decided to live. So, I was walking down a riverbed one day uh, with my friend Sunita and we looked across the riverbed and there were just dozens of children breaking rocks. And um, they were taking big pieces of rock, bringing them to the side of the riverbed and they'd break them into gravel all day, every day. And so um, it basically like, it was just this very, I don't know, spiritual, emotional moment that just brought me to my knees where I was like, this is not okay. And I cannot live in a world where our human family and where children are suffering this way. So I locked eyes with this girl named Tima and she was five or six and, and struggling to make ends meet. She was a rock crusher. And I was like, okay, how do we, how do we fix this? And this was the time where uh, everything and all of the research and the narrative around development was education and investing in young girls and women. So yeah. we started by just enrolling the kids into school and helping them overcome those barriers. And it was just really small. And I, I, I guess I want to say that sometimes when people look at our organization, it's just like, oh my gosh, it's, you know, w- w- yeah, we're, we're mid-sized now and we have a big platform. We've been in the grind and in the trenches for 15 years and we've grown. But it started with a really small, organic step of just trying to solve a teeny tiny problem. And that was those children on the riverbed. And I just had this moment and a vision as a 19-year-old, which probably a little too young, a little too naive of just like, I have to, like, I can't turn my back. And I want to create the world that I want to live in. And what if we could walk across this riverbed one day and not see a single child breaking rocks day in and day out. And so it was this really kind of simple vision. And then fast forward from there, there was the second realization that there was just so much more work to do and how could we uplift an entire community out of Mm -hmm. the trenches of, of poverty and, and, and the suffering that was there, and also the beauty. And how do you do this in a way that preserves the beauty and the culture and all of the good things? Because there are so many good things. So that was my kind of deep dive moment where I decided I wanted to live there. And then the second kind of critical step is my co-founder. I have, and, and our team, mm-hmm. and I'm, a, you know, I think I had to have that wake up moment as a outsider and as a foreigner and be like, I don't know the answers to this. I just know that one, I have the calling. 
I'm here and I see the problem, but that I need a lot of help. And so I read every single book I could on developments, on change, on, you know, grassroots community movements. Uh, and I had a really good co-founder who, his name's Tope, and he was an orphan himself when he was uh, a very young child, went to India to work as a child porter when he was about 10 years old. And he also wanted to come back to Nepal and do this work with his family and his wife. And so it was really about um, that immersiveness between Nepal and um, our partnership and, you know, my American New Jersey upbringing that I think has made us strong because it was always like this push and pull of we're not going in here and changing this as outsiders. We're really working with the community and we're going to do this together. And I'm just one conduit and I'm one piece of the puzzle, but we started a Nepali board. We registered a Nepali NGO. Um, Mm. There are so many women and elders and people from the community. And and even as the government started to form working in partnership with government uh, was really critical. So such a beautiful story. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) Well, there's two pieces that I think are actually really important that you hit on. Like one, I think, you know, being 19 and a little bit naive, I think played such an important role because I know I go there now and I'm like a little bit less naive and and jaded Mm -hmm. about the whole process. And if it wasn't for that sort of you know, it was just like when you're that age and get to go to that place and see that and you had that thought and making like a small step and having it have this like huge ripple effect now 15 years later, I think sometimes we're a little too jaded. Like, oh, well, what could we really do to help? Or, oh, like, you know, I keep hearing right now that like the white woman is like, you know, the next white man, you know, it's like, Mm. who are we to be, you know, it's that that's come up so much in conversation lately. And so one, the fact that you actually took action um, and maybe you didn't have all the answers and that's okay, but you did something about it. And it's, it's coming from a place of intention. And I think it's always the intention behind something that makes it what it is. I say all the time, like nothing is good or bad. It's mm-hmm. the intention that you bring to it that makes it what it is. And, you know, you never had an intention of, you know, coming in and doing the savior thing or doing the fixing thing. You just saw one place where you could help and be of service and you did it. And then I think the second piece is the partnering with the Nepali people. Um, That's one thing that I've learned. Emery does a lot of health camps um, and a lot of Western doctors will actually come in and help with the health camps. But the Nepali doctors, are they're like the assistants, actually. Um, So when they run these health camps, it's completely run by the Nepali people and by the Nepali doctors. And then the Westerners are sort of helping. And I just find that method to be really beautiful. And, you know, I've researched you now to know that I I believe that, you know, what you're doing right now is actually like completely beautiful and profound. But do you get like slack or do you get um, pushback being, you know, a Westerner coming in, creating this stuff in Nepal or do people get it? Um, I'd say, I mean, I think – we're always going to get that question and we always should get that question because, you know, the history of development, if you really look at it, even 10, 15, 20 years ago, even now is us. And I say we and us, because, you know, 
yeah, I look the part, <laughs> but and I'm a Westerner going in and saying, we have a quick fix. We have a band aid. Let's drop off our sneakers. Let's, we know better. And, mm. um, so, and I think this new era of development is really just now emerging where, uh, where we're realizing like, Hey, that didn't work. And early on in, in the years when we were starting this and dreaming it and visioning it, um, you know, we knew that that didn't work. We knew that that wouldn't work. And I think that that has what's made us stand today, but we're always going to get that question and we always will. And, and Tope and I both, you know, we know how to address that question. And it's, it's all about, I think when you are coming in from the outside, like knowing how to use your privilege, your power, your voice, what you bring and all, and also knowing when you need to like step back and say, no, this is, this is a Nepali based project. And I don't know, it was always a fine line to kind of dance and figure out. And I think we as an organization have navigated very gracefully, you know, we're 120 Nepali people and, um, and I also say we as an Nepali there, see, like, um, but no, but you're Nepali yeah. on the inside. I can feel it. Yeah. We're uh, kind of both. We're like this immersive, like two pieces of the puzzle where yeah. all coming together. And, but I do think because of this old traditional model for charity that needs to die of us, like being a drop off country or just like throwing our money at a problem, thinking that we know better, it's, it's got to end. And I think there needs to be skepticism and questioning until it does end. And people don't go in as, you know, white women or white saviors or white men or whatever we want to call it, outsiders, Westerners, thinking that we can solve all these problems because we can't. Right. Yeah. No, I think it's, I think it is a great conversation. And I think, you know, for me, thinking about, you know, Emery and I are both white women going into Nepal leading these trips, but obviously we're part, like everyone we're partnering with there are like our Nepali brothers, our family there um, that have organizations and we, you know, use their organizations, of course, but still it's something that I think about which I think we obviously should always be thinking about. And I think, you know, what you've done is really gone all in. Um, And this is your company. This is your business. This is your livelihood. This is your existence. And my question for you is if it's not that, like I'm an entrepreneur, I have a marketing agency, and this is sort of a bigger existential question that I, I deal with. But if my whole life isn't directed towards, um, you know, I do the Nepal trips twice a year. Um, if there's people in my positions that aren't going to go all in and like immerse myself in the culture and Mm. actually live there and create a life there, where do we start? You know, like where is the place that we can, or do we support companies and missions like yours? You know, like where, where do we, as like, I'm your typical, you know, 30 something female entrepreneur that is, awake in love with Nepal and can't go back to sleep, but it's actually not easy to just, you can't just like drop money off somewhere and that's, nor do I want to, but I don't know. Does that question make sense? Oh my gosh. It makes so much sense. And I totally hear you. I mean, not everyone can pack up 
and move 8,000 miles away with their backpack. And I realized that my story is very, very extreme. I think I'm a normal person and with a normal (laughs) offering, I don't think I'm special at all. Like this was the course that my life took me in. And I'm really incredibly grateful for that because I love my life and I'm so blessed and it's been hard and wonderful. But yeah, for the person who isn't going to up and leave and adopt 58 kids, um, what, <laughs> what are my thoughts? Well, here's, here's the thing. I really deeply in my heart believe that we all matter and that we have to start where we are with what we have. And, um, it starts with empathy, compassion, kindness, and self-love, like right where we are now. Um, and doing what you can where you are. And again, with what you have, I think I, I don't, what I don't like is when I hear people are like, well, I'll do it after I have my degree or I'll go give back after I make my money or after this, or when I have this and kind of like waiting for this destination. What I like to say to people is find something like it can be anything. Sadly, this world has a million and one causes and things that need change and need hearts and need resources. So find the organizations that you love and that you trust who are implementing on the ground, who are, you know, directly putting food in the mouths of kids, who directly enrolling kids into school, supporting scholarships, saving the whales, saving the bees, you know, eliminating plastic. I mean, there's a, a, you know, there's a gajillion things to do. So Number two, I believe in philanthropy. I believe that there needs to be, uh, you know, resources diverted into important causes. And I believe in people who, you know, they're working 60 hour weeks and making a lot of money and they write a check. You know, those people who write checks to me each year, there's about 3,800 donors. Those, those are the people that are providing a safe house for my at-risk adolescent girls who are you know, school lunch every day for 500 kids, uh, a women's, you know, women's empowerment courses, schooling, education, scholarships, like those are my people. And so Mm. I, I, I think if what you can do is write a check, amazing, like amazing, let's move resources. Like we can't have a hundred people, in the US with billions and billions and billions of dollars and the rest of the world with no one. So if this, if that's what you can do. Great. Two, right. your time, you know, like getting involved in an organization, you know, we're always looking for people who can give us time and, and no matter what capacity that is. And yeah, I just think digging into something to like some cause, it could be partnering with a nonprofit or an NGO on the ground, like, what you're doing. It could be just writing a check. It could be giving your time. It could be just being the best human being you can possibly be where you are, like reusing your coffee mug, you know, like (laughs) the world needs all of us doing everything we possibly can. And I'm all just about, instead of us all being like, okay, well, I can't do this or we shouldn't do it that way, or we should do it that way. Like, let's just, let's just all do something to the best of our ability with, with, you know, the most knowledge we can with them as ethically as we possibly can, as morally as we possibly can and going in with, um, yeah, with, with knowledge and with using our privilege to hand it 
to hand this over to the people who need it more than us. Yeah. I just, I think that's such a beautiful response. And, um, I could see myself if I were in your position getting a little bit like, I don't know, maybe righteous or judgmental of other people um, who haven't sort of, you know, taken the step or even doing something so small. And you just seem so like open and compassionate towards people who aren't necessarily doing what you're doing. And it's just really beautiful to see. Uh, It did have me, I did think of this one question though, because of my familiarity, my small familiarity compared to your knowledge of Nepal, but with researching NGOs, for example, um, and just organizations. And and this goes beyond Nepal. Um, In a lot of developing countries, you know, if you're lucky enough or fortunate enough or privileged enough to get to travel to one of these countries and fall in love with the people or the kids, you know, my sister has a, um, she, when she traveled to Africa, for one time in Cambodia, another time it's like, now that's where she wants to help, you know? And so mm-hmm. we get these sort of, um, you know, love affairs with these, these cultures and countries and people and want to help. And writing a check, like you said, um, is obviously something, the first thing that came to my mind, but oftentimes there's a lot of corruption, I, uh, within the organizations, um, and making sure that the kids really are getting the money or, um, you know, making sure that the artisans like right now, something really big for me is fair trade. Mm-hmm. Um, and that just happened. Like you said, you find that thing that really, you know, and that's what I'm really focused on right now. And, um, as an organization that is obviously legit and doing this kind of work, are there like things that we can look out for or like how do we find that organization to write the check to regardless of the country? Like what questions should we be asking ourselves um, when we want to, you know, give our time or money? You're, You're asking such good questions. Yeah. There are so many things you can do to do your due diligence, just like you would when you, when you want to buy something ethically, you look at like where it's coming from. Is it truly fair trade? Like what are the work conditions? You, you as a consumer, um, and as someone who is investing or giving anything, it comes with a lot of power and a lot of responsibility. So here's, here's my advice. Number one, get to know the organization inside and out. There's a lot of little um, shortcuts that you can take, like something simple as Charity Navigator. So you can look um, beyond just pouring through the website and kind of reviews of, of the charity, you know, looking at who their board members are. The, you know, the board is who really holds the organization accountable to do what they say they're going to do in full transparency. Um, So yeah, look at the board, look at Charity Navigator, pour through the organization's 990. We all as charities need to publish these things um, as 501c3s. Get to know the work happening on the ground, ask questions to the implementing partners. Um, You have this relationship with the organizations you work with because you know the people, you have that trust. And at the end of the day, it's all about trust and making sure that to the best of your ability and the best of your knowledge, um, you know, you're the most of the, the most of your dollars going into direct change and impact. And so, yes, you will come across the bad guys, just like you do in business. You will come across, you know, um, the organizations that you know, are maybe more wasteful or that you don't agree in their, their, with what their ethical principles are. And, and yeah, I'd say find the ones that you do agree with, find the missions that you love, 
find, you know, the people with, with whose kind of ethos you agree with and, and do a little research and, and yeah, at the end of the day, um, really trust that the work's getting going on. Like you can follow organizations now on social media, you can see the action, you can see the impact and, uh, there's a lot of good ones out there, just like there are a few sketchy bad ones, you know? So just keep, I guess, keep the stories focused on, on the good instead of the one-off bad ones that occasionally you come up and you hear about. Right. Um, you know, the nonprofit industry is an industry, just like any other exactly. industry. And there's really, you know, there's like spectacular, this is the industry that's, you know, really changing the world. I mean, world hunger has been cut in half. More kids are enrolled in primary school than ever have been before. Gender-based violence is, uh, we're getting there. You know, maternal mortality is uh, slowly decreasing. So, you know, development does work, and um, but only when done the right way. And so find the people within this industry that are doing things that are best practices and following international standards. Yeah. I think that's all really good advice, especially the board. I like, I, that one really resonated with me. I'm familiar with a few nonprofits and I actually have an episode of this podcast called for profit or nonprofit, just because, um, it's a big conversation mm-hmm. right now with a couple organizations that I'm working closely with is they're actually, you know, running into a lot of barriers, um, by being a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just like you said, it's, it's a business, like any other. And, you know, just to sort of circle back to where this whole thing started with your mission, you know, I was, um, I just think education is the most important thing. Um, and how we can continue to educate people, which is why I feel, you know, like having, you know, this is a business podcast, but what you've created is a business and it's also focused on (laughs) educating children and empowering women. And I think, um, that is for me, especially in Nepal, the biggest thing that I see, like there's this little girl that I have a friendship with, you know, and she's teaching me to count in Nepali and I'm teaching her English and we're friends, you know, like she knows me and, um, I sleep in her house in the village when I'm there and she thinks I'm like totally crazy, but she's one of my favorite people I've ever met. Mm. And, uh, I was realizing when she was reading her book one day, she was writing in English, um, she was like, you know, writing in English in her workbook, but she didn't know what she was writing. Like she didn't know the Nepali word for it was, Mm -hmm. you know, she wasn't making the connection, um, that like she just wrote cat and what that is in Nepal. Like she was just like sort of tracing. Wrote based learning. Yeah. Yes. And, um, it was, you know, I, that's just obviously not how we learned and, um, not how I learned Spanish, for example, or French when I was in school. And so I was asking Amrit, who's my Nepali friend and brother, and he owns, um, Himalayan quests, um, which is like a tracking company. And he actually like trains a lot of the Sherpas and a lot of the guides and, um, it's just so beautiful, the whole thing. And this is his little sister, whatever. Anyway, I asked him like, what can I do for her? Um, and he just said education, like the whole thing is education. The kids down below and the village down below have a totally different situation than the ones closer to the school. And it's this whole thing, but 
versus just helping one person can actually disrupt like a village dynamic, which is something that I didn't really think about. And so he said, instead of like buying her backpacks or buying her pencils or whatever, like it would be better to donate to the school Mm -hmm. So that they could then distribute the money like evenly amongst the village and things like that. So it's just one, it's going back to education and two, figuring out like, I don't want to disrupt as this Westerner coming into a village and staying here for three days, you know, thinking I know anything. Um, But also finding that balance like you did at 19 by taking that small step, I think is sort of the line that I'm walking right now, especially Mm -hmm. now that I'm getting more and more familiar with the dynamics and the cultures and everything that's happening there and just letting. So what we ended up doing and what I ended up doing was um, giving it to Amra and his organization. And then he was able to like put it towards the right thing and just like trusting the Nepali organization to do it. Um, But it's just, it's interesting. I think we have to be more awake now, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. You've been in the industry more long, I'm not even in the industry. You've been in this industry for so long. My sort of final question for you is, um, with everything that's happened and with sort of this white privilege conversation or white savior conversation, whatever you want to call it, um, being so sensitive right now, have you seen in the last, I don't know, two decades that you've been involved in this, like a positive trend? Um, like you said, you know, all of these statistics have been cut in half and is it hopeful? Like, are you hopeful like being in it day in and day out? Can it get discouraging? Like what is your overall sort of view on the way that the whole idea of nonprofits and helping develop developing countries is like trending for us? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that if there has been a positive change in the last 20 years, it's definitely not because of, you know, Western influence. It's, it's because of true, um, you know, community, uh, national efforts from local people who are choosing peace, who are choosing prosperity, who are choosing education, who are investing in, you know, their own communities and really caring. Um, right. And I think if you're able to leverage um, and utilize in an efficient way, you know, international development dollars and best practices, then yeah, you can do that work even more efficiently and effectively. Um, but yeah, I, I don't for a second think that it's, you know, I mean, I don't think it's just because of, you know, those of us who have traveled and gone there, I think, yeah, we've, we've made an impact and I believe that we've made a dent, but I think you have to have that, um, that magic bullet and that magic bullet, that secret sauce is by and for and with the local people. And I think that that's where in development, we're seeing the biggest changes and efficacy. So yeah, I'm, I'm to, to make a long story short, I'm really positive I'm also wary like you are. And I, I go, I'm very introspective about it. I'm constantly asking these questions. I'm constantly reading best practices. I'm constantly thinking, how can we do this better? How can we do it more effectively? How can we, you know, how do we do this the best we can? And so, yeah, just the curiosity is important. The willing to adapt and change and be the best you can be is important. And 
but I believe in it. Like I said, I, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't, yeah. and I wouldn't be, it's too hard. Like I wouldn't be as all in yeah. as I am if I didn't see the positive changes and the positive changes are that, you know, these kids, these women we work with are changing the world. They're changing their communities. They're, you know, they are changing these cycles of poverty and violence forever in the trajectory of their lives and their family, families' lives. And there is change. And I see it every single day. Like kids are safe, educated and loved. And that's the core to our mission. And I truly believe in every ounce of who I am that the world will be a peaceful, loving place when we learn how to care for our children and our most vulnerable. And when we learn to respect women and um, that's why, that's why we do this work at Blink Now. That's why Tope and I do this work. It's so beautiful. I just, I could talk to you all day. Um, my last question, and I feel like you just sort of answered it, but um, I think that there are a lot of companies out there right now that are like trying to start a nonprofit branch or like whatever, just to check the box. And I also think that there are a lot of people out there like yourself um, that are hungry to make a difference in the world. Mm. And I'm seeing more and more of that. And like, like what I like to say are in it for the right reasons. Um, and for those people, and I think I can include myself in this, um, what is your biggest advice for people starting out, like you said, like as a grassroots mm-hmm. nonprofit or somebody who has that dream, has that vision, has met that local person that they want to partner with, they found their cause. You know, I would say maybe you like 10 years ago or even seven years ago where it's just getting off the ground and, um, you know, what is sort of your biggest advice? I would say, and I'm asking from a business standpoint, um, that you would give people. Yeah. So first of all, I want to say I'm really happy and thrilled that corporations and businesses are looking at CSR, um, corporate social responsibility for those of you who don't know what it is, whether that's, you know, investing dollars in the communities that they work and giving back. And I think that that's millennial driven. I think that's because our generation is saying, look, we don't want to sell our soul to a big company that's not doing good in the world. We don't want to work for them. We don't want to invest in them. And you will get called out when, you know, when you do something morally wrong and unethical, because this is a new era of social media and YouTube and Twitter. Um, So I'm really positive about that. I think it's incredible. And I think there needs to be more of it. Corporate philanthropy, listen to this, Krista, it only makes up for about three to 4% of the nonprofit industry, um, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. So the corporations really need to step up their game. They need to step this up and start giving their money away and investing it meaningfully. And yeah, like, like you said, finding the partners, the change makers, the locals, the people on the ground, um, being strategic, knowing who's already there. Like, don't go into a community unless you know who's already there working in that space. Because it's, I think the nonprofits and the NGOs out there, they're, they're very much in their own lane. They're just like, I'm doing my thing, I'm doing my thing. And there's not a lot of collaboration. So find ways to bring multiple voices and people working on similar issues together before you just go start your own thing. Um, and then... Yeah, invest at the grassroots level and build up. And like you, I mean, education, 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 like, boom, like that, that is 
everything. It's the best return on investment that you can offer. Um, and, and making sure that, uh, and, and, you know, human most basic needs and rights, of course. So yeah, invest wisely and do your research and then give and partner. I love that. Such beautiful advice. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Lastly, um, I can, you know, speak the calls to action on your website, but how can, you know, if this obviously, um, you know, impacts my listeners as much as it impacts me, how if, you know, we want to support Blink now, um, I see there's lots of opportunities to donate. Um, Are there any other, you know, big opportunities or things coming up or things that you would like to have people know about? Oh, totally. Yeah. Just follow us on social media. We have like constant calls to action there on, uh, we're blinknow.org on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. So definitely follow along and there's opportunities to get involved, to volunteer your time, to become a fellow with us, um, to join our roots program, which is just like giving, you know, five, $10 a month that we directly put into supporting our kids and sharing our story. we just definitely share the story and spread more good and positive change in the world. I love it so much. Well, thank you for being here. And I hope we can keep in touch. Um, I'll, I'll write you offline about um, my travels to Nepal and yeah, hopefully our paths will we'll cross. cross. Um, yeah. And I'm obviously um, going to continue to go back. I'm already planning a fall trip with my husband because he has not been. And he's like, okay, obviously I have to go because you're so obsessed with this place and these people. And um it's just such a beautiful, a beautiful way to experience life is uh, tracking through the villages and meeting these people. And so, um, thank you um, for doing the work that you're doing, Krista. You I saying? wanted I wanted to tell you, Coppola, your Nepali name and the name of uh, our school and and home is it means to bloom or to blossom, and it's a little bud like just before it bursts. And I just think it's. It's such a beautiful name for you and for children everywhere. <laughs> I love it so much. And, you know, when she named me that, uh, my Nepali brother started like laughing so much because that's really like I am in that deep in that process of growth right now. And the fact that my Ama and I can barely speak, you know, communicate more than a few sentences to each other, she picked up on that. It's mm-hmm. like so. So beautiful. And she's like the reason why I want to learn Nepali. Well, for a lot of reasons, but yeah, yeah, it's just, thank you for, thank you for what you do. And thank you for sharing that. And I really hope to stay in touch and follow your journey and help in any way that I can. And I know sharing this is just a small piece, but um, hopefully it will bring more awareness to you and what you're doing. So thank you again. Namaste. (laughs) And, um, For all my listeners, thank you for being here. And until next time, keep growing.